0: Let's all stand together at this time, and we're going to be looking in Mark chapter 9, a message I call Teaching Through Transfiguration, Mark chapter 9 and verse 2. Now after six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceeding white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And may God bless the reading of His Word today as my prayer. You may be seated. In our minds and hearts today, I want us to take a trip to the mountain of transfiguration, what Simon Peter, many years later, would refer to as the Holy Mount, the Holy Mountain, the mountain of transfiguration. We're not going to do that obviously geographically. In fact, the actual site of this, like many other things relating to the land we call holy, is to this day under dispute. Uh, that is, there's a lot of different opinions about which mountain in Israel this actually happened on. I'm not sure, quite honestly, that it makes all that much difference. What matters is that it happened. <laughs> it happened. Uh, Whether we know uh, exactly where until Jesus comes again, now He can all take us on a tour if He wants to, Uh, after uh, maybe during the millennial reign, you know, we might see it. But uh, we're not that concerned about the geography, Uh, but the events, the events that happened there, completely real and done for a reason When Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. We're going to continue on with our reading, verse 4. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Elijah appeared with them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. How would you like to have set in on that conversation? Uh, Every time I read through this story, I think the same thing. You know, it would have been nice if they'd have just recorded a few lines of what they talked about. What would Moses and Elijah be talking to Jesus about? Uh, Again, if we needed to know, they would have told us. And if the Lord wants to replay the whole thing, maybe during the millennial reign, He can do that. And then Peter spoke up. Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And again, every time I read through this passage, I think uh, I identify a lot with Simon Peter because though he did not know what to say, it didn't keep him from saying something. You know, anybody else ever been there, didn't know what to say, but I got to say something. And that's the only reason he said this apparently. Uh, was because he didn't know what to say. And a cloud came and overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Amen. What an experience that was. What a, what a sight to behold. Many, many years later, the aged Simon Peter, uh, writing his last epistle before he died, said this in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15: Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. After my decease, for we do not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Old man, Simon Peter, the aged apostle, writing his last letter. By by the way, I want to remind you, Simon Peter says. I want to remind you of something. We, We didn't make this up. Uh, This is not some fable that we designed. And the one thing that he brought up was the mountain of transfiguration. We were with him on the holy mountain when we heard the very voice of God the Father speaking from the excellent glory, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. We did not make this up. This is not a fable WE SAW HIM TRANSFIGURED. WE HEARD THE VOICE OF GOD ON THE HOLY MOUNTAIN. NOW THE QUESTION IS, WHY DID JESUS DO THIS? ANY TIME THAT WE BEGIN TO TRY TO ANSWER THE WHY QUESTIONS OF SCRIPTURE THAT GOD DOESN'T ANSWER, WE'RE ON SHAKY GROUND. BUT I THINK WE CAN SEE A COUPLE OF THINGS PLAYING OUT IN THIS PASSAGE. Uh, that tell us that Jesus was teaching us something. And Simon Peter, bringing it up again, was reminding us the of the things that Jesus had taught. This was a teaching moment. And it reaches across all these many centuries, recorded for us in Holy Scripture, because there's some things that God wants us to know, to see. And the first thing this passage shows us is the blessed hope. The blessed hope. Uh, That's what Paul talked about in Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 when he said that we are looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His appearance in glory. You see the first time he came he was born as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem uh, to a couple of peasant parents. And he was put in the manger, and he was born in a stable because they didn't have room for him in the inn. He was not born in a palace. He did not come with magnificent glory. But when he comes again, he will come in great glory. And the transfiguration, in a way, is a preview of that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, and verse 1, That assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God uh, present with power. Now, since we have not seen the kingdom of God as Jesus was promising, then either there's still a really, really old apostle around somewhere, or which is far more likely because this is the very context. He was talking about the event that we're looking at in this passage. The, The very things that were coming on later in the passage, the story of the transfiguration. When they would see Him transfigured, changed, and they would see Him in His glory and in His power. And that's exactly what happened. Now the word transfigured, you probably know, is the word uh, metamorphosis in our language. It refers to what happens when something's inner essential nature comes out. Uh, you might think that uh, when you see a butterfly flying around, fluttering around somewhere, that you're looking at a flying worm. That is not the case. That's not the case. When you look at a caterpillar, you are looking at a crawling Butterfly. There's a difference. The difference has to do with what its inner nature is. Metamorphosis then is when something's inner nature actually comes to out. It comes to the surface so that it can be seen. It's been transformed, transfigured. And now we see what it really was all along. When Jesus then was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, what the disciples saw was glory. That glory was on the inside. It was veiled by his human flesh, but suddenly he was changed before them, transfigured, draped around his shoulders with the robes that were woven by the angels themselves. With him then was Moses, and uh, Moses had long since been dead and buried. There was Elijah. Uh, Elijah, of course, went to heaven without dying. Remember chariots of fire caught up to heaven? In a chariot of fire. Well, and there he saw that he uh, did not uh, taste death. There was Moses who represented the law. Elijah, no doubt, who represented the, prof- the prophets. And there came a time when they stood in silence. Though they were conversing with Jesus, I have to think they were listening more than they were talking. How about you? So what Jesus was doing then on the mountain of transfiguration was giving them just a glimpse of the glory that He was going to have. And isn't it interesting that He told them that and He waited six days before He did it? Now I don't make a lot of Bible numerics, but there are some numbers in Scripture that are assigned specific meaning, and the number six is one of them. Uh, Look in Revelation chapter 12. And our chapter 13, rather, and verse 18 here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. And that's a famous number with us. Uh, Six repeated three times. Uh, It is the number of a man. That could also be translated it is man's number, and his number then is man's number, repeated three times, six, six, six. Man, of course, was created on the sixth day, uh, the crowning of uh, uh, God's creative work. And uh, so here the Bible tells us that six is is man's number. It's the number of man. Uh, By repeating it three times, the Bible is telling us that this will be the apex, the culmination of man, of mankind, uh, economically, uh, intellectually, uh, governmentally, he will do what man can do, and he will rise. And the product then is going to be the beast. For a while that man of sin, he's also called, is going to seem to have it all together. He's going to come into power, uh, not in a great military battle, but he'll come into power by bringing peace, specifically peace in the Middle East. I tell you what; every time they start talking about a peace treaty over there, uh, I get excited. Listen, don't get scared. The Bible says lift your head up because your redemption draweth nigh. It's not the wars we have to worry about over there. It's the peace treaties that we need to be watching out for. I don't have time to preach all that sermon for you this morning. I, I just bring this up because it's just interesting that Jesus waited six days And we know that the number six is the number of man, and it represents mankind doing what he does without God. That kingdom started, if you want to see it biblically in the book of Genesis, you'll have to go all the way back to the uh, Tower of Babel when they said, let's make a tower and we'll ascend up into heaven. It's mankind's effort to promote himself without God intellectually Oh, haven't we made some intellectual advancements? Knowledge is accelerating exponentially these days, exponentially. We used to say that knowledge was doubling, the accumulation of man's knowledge was doubling. It was about every twenty years, and it shrunk to eight. I don't even know anymore how much how quickly man's knowledge is doubling. We are assimilating incredible amounts of information. We're learning so, so much. We're advancing intellectually in incredible ways. But yet we live out what the Bible says when it talks about how we profess ourselves to be wise, but mankind becomes foolish. Because when we leave God out of our equation, when we elevate ourselves or try to, but we leave God out, then there's a part of us that becomes more and more depraved, more and more dishonest, more and more dishonorable. And when Paul talked about that in Romans chapter 1, about men dishonoring their bodies among themselves, what he was talking about was talking about how debased human life would become, how cheap it would become, as a land was full of violence and death. Have you been hearing the reports of all the violence in Little Rock? Been hearing about it? Chicago was in the news last year. But what you never hear about in the news is what we've talked about here today on National Right to Life Day, and that is how many babies are being aborted in this country every single year. And I'm glad to stand up and say that it's still wrong And it is still a product of mankind's efforts. While we're advancing in so many ways, isn't it interesting, intriguing, that we begin to devalue the very thing that we claim to be exalting? Human life. Human life. We see the violence around us, the intellectual uh, advancements all around us. We see the natural signs that Jesus, in fact, promised us. There'd be signs in heaven above, signs on the earth. Listen, I believe we're living in the evening shadows of the last days. I believe it. This man of sin that Jesus would talk about in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 18 uh, though he comes in at a time he's going to usher in a nightmare of sin and depravity and destruction. It's just an intriguing thing that Jesus promised his glory, but he waited six days before he did what he told them he was going to do. Man may have his day, but the day of the Lord is coming. Make no mistake, the day of the Lord's coming. There was Moses and Elijah, two prime examples. Of course, Moses died and was buried. We don't know where he was buried. God Himself buried him and conducted the funeral. There came a time when he needed the body, probably at this time. And and the angels had to have a fight about it. Jude told us about that. Don't have time to preach that sermon this morning. Just that uh, we know that the angels needed the body of Moses, and apparently the angels went and got it. And there it is on the Mount Transfiguration. Died, buried. raptured, now he's in glory. Of course, Moses mentioned first. Elijah, he's the one that went to heaven without dying. Oh, isn't that a glorious picture of the rapture? There it is. Dead in Christ shall rise first. Thank you. First. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together and meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. This was a a preview, a picture, if you will. The coming of the Lord for saints, and ultimately, of course, of the dead or the day of the Lord as well. Now it was at that exact moment then when Simon Peter wanted to talk about a building project. Let's build three tabernacles. Now, let's give him some credit. He did talk about tents, not buildings. But as soon as that happened, the cloud settled upon them. They heard the voice of the Lord, and when the cloud lifted, there was nobody there but Jesus, Jesus only. You say, what did that Jesus only mean? It meant that Moses and Elijah had left the building. They weren't there anymore. Now it was back to Peter, James, John, and Jesus. Now, why that all played out the way it did, again, the Bible doesn't tell us all that. But I do know that we can see a lot of truth in the fact that when it all was said and done, it was all about Jesus. You want to know what the Bible's all about? It's about Jesus Christ. You want to know the the mystery of history? Uh, you got to know Jesus. Uh, You want to know the secret of prophecy? You want to know what the world is coming to? Uh, The world is coming to Jesus. You want to know why the world is here? You want to know why you're here? You have to know Jesus Christ. Uh, The world is not waiting for something to happen. It's waiting for someone to come, and that is Jesus only. Our eternal attention, affection, and adoration and admiration will all be heaped upon our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who lived and died and who, behold, is alive forevermore. Not only does this passage then show to us and teach us about the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but it also teaches us about a hurting world. Look in verse 17. Verse 17, then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. There they came down from that glorious mountaintop experience, and when they reached the valley, they found a brokenhearted dad with a demon-possessed child. When we talk about the symptoms, he could not speak. Uh, he would fall on the ground. He would foam at his mouth, gnash his teeth, and become rigid. Uh, that sounds a whole lot like a seizure, and it may very well have been. Uh, But don't just explain away what God did. The Bible tells us, and Jesus Christ affirmed, that what was wrong with this boy is he was demon-possessed. And this particular demon had uh, taken away his ability to speak and was causing these seizures in his life. We can't look at this passage and conclude that everybody who has seizures is demon-possessed. We must not do that. But we can take the Word of God and and, and take it at face value and say, yes, that is what it was. What was happening in this case was this boy was possessed of a demon spirit. He could not speak. And this demon spirit caused him to have terrible seizures. He had brought him to the disciples. For the disciples to cast out this demon, but they could not do it. This is a paradox of this magnificent time of worship followed by this mediocre time of ministry. Magnificence on the mountain, mediocrity in the valley. Build three tabernacles. Lord, it's good for us to be here life changing experience on the mountain devil reckon havoc when they come down and they were powerless like us the disciples then had enjoyed the presence of the lord they'd experienced a wonderful time of worship but they found themselves in the midst of a hurting and helpless world that they couldn't do anything about. Now, when Jesus came on the scene, he saw them talking among themselves with some of the religious leaders of the Jews. And for their benefit, I'm sure, and for ours, he walked up to them and asked them, well, you know, what are you all talking about? And they explained uh, what had happened. They were perhaps disputing among themselves, and and, and we don't know exactly what. Maybe they were talking about methodology. Maybe the scribes had some ideas. Well, you know, you tried this, and maybe you need to try this. I I, I don't know. They were having some type of, of disputing or argument or discussion among themselves, and Jesus wasn't real pleased with it. Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Apparently, both of those things were going to have to happen. As long as he was with them, he was going to have to bear with them. That was was a fact. Jesus didn't argue. He did not dispute. He did not plead or beg. No formula. No rituals. He simply spoke. And the devils fled before the word of God of His power. They still do. They still do. Jesus, in a way, you see, was taking the lesson from the mountain, Jesus only, and bringing it down into the valley. What they needed was Jesus. The world was not going to be impressed or moved by the magnificence of their worship on the mountain. But what they learned on the mountain... Jesus only. They needed to put in place in the valley. The world needs today what only Jesus can give them. And that we're no different from that demon's possessed boy, from that brokenhearted daddy, from the people of Israel who were there in that day. The world needs what only Jesus can give them. Only Jesus on the mountain. Only Jesus in the world. And we have to see then, of course, the help that Jesus brings. Notice what he said very simply, bring him to me. I have to wonder why they'd spent so much time arguing and why somebody hadn't already brought that baby boy to Jesus. Why? Why? Find somebody already thought of this. This would have been a great time for Andrew to show up. Andrew was always the one who seemed to be bringing somebody to Jesus. I don't know. maybe he was taking a break that day. I don't know. You'd think that even maybe Andrew would have thought of it. Let's take him to Jesus. Instead, they were over there arguing, discussing, disputing, carrying on with the religious leaders. And they had to say, I can't help you. That's a terrible thing that the disciples had to listen to when that father indicted them and said, you know, I brought them to your disciples and they couldn't help him. Now, in our defense today, I want to tell you right up front, there's a lot of times that I've looked at people eyeball to eyeball without an ounce of shame or regret and told them, I can't help you, but I know the one who can because I face people all the time, and you do too, that needs what only Jesus can do for them. That's not something for us to be embarrassed about. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not supposed to help people. In fact, Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 30, Give to every man that asketh you. That is, if we can help people, and we can figure out how to help them, we should. I struggle because I want to help a lot of people that I can't figure out how to help. Because though they want money, I know that if I give them money, it's just going to add to their problem. You know that too. I don't want to be an enabler. That's just making their problem worse. What they need is Jesus. And a lot of times that's the very last thing they want is Jesus. What they need is the gospel. What they need is the power that can change their life. I know that one. Mark adds then an interesting detail to the story when he brings that up in verse 16 and he said he asked the scribes what are you uh, discussing with them? They were disputing, verse 14, what are you discussing? You know if we're not careful I'm afraid we can spend a lot of time arguing with people when what we need to be doing is pointing them to Jesus Christ. The devil will give us a thousand different things to argue about. Amen. When what people need is Jesus. Bring him to me. We ought to underline that verse and maybe put it on our uh, our hard drive somewhere. Maybe write it on our forehead or on our hand where we can see it. Bring him to Jesus. Bring him to Jesus. That's what's needed. Bring them to Jesus. Mark chapter 9, then verse 28. Uh, when he had come into the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could, not, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. Fasting. You see, when we talk about bringing people to Jesus, we might very well ask how we can do that. We know how the disciples could do that because Jesus was just right across the yard. But how do we do it? And Jesus brings up this teaching then for the ages. There are some things, some things that can only be done by prayer and fasting. Now, now fasting has a simple meaning It means we miss meals or go without food uh, for a period of time. Uh, And uh, we might devote ourselves then, so we're not just praying, but we are fasting and praying. Uh, This is nothing radical. Uh, Jesus taught us in the Beatitudes when you pray, he said, you don't pray like the heathen do and their vain repetition and all the things they go. You don't pray like that. But when you pray, you pray like this. And he gave us what we call the Lord's Prayer, more specifically, the model's Prayer. He said, When you give, you don't sound the trumpet before you and you don't go out and, and ring bells in the street and say, Everybody, look, I'm fixing to give. Not like that. When you give, he said, you don't let your left hand know what your right hand does. That, that, that's why you don't see a lot of things from Faith Baptist. If we help people, nobody knows it but us. And that's the way I like it. Don't want to embarrass people by putting them on the news or saying, look at what Faith Baptist is doing for this person or that person. Why don't we do that? Because of what Jesus said. When you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand does and your father who sees in secret then will reward you openly that's what he said When you pray when you give when you fast number 3 uh, you don't uh, don't put ashes on your head don't put uh, sackcloth on with that rough cloth. Don't, don't fast in order to be seen by anybody. When you fast, you do so in secret. Keep it to yourself. And here's the passage he said, this is something that only happens by prayer and fasting. By prayer and fasting. One of the ways, and I submit to you this morning, one of the ways that we bring people to Jesus is by prayer and fasting. Now, again, I don't have time to preach all of that to you this morning. I've preached probably more of it than I intended to and a whole lot more than I'd planned. But I just got started and couldn't stop. But I will tell you this. We wonder about the connection between prayer and fasting. I think we can explain it very simply. Have you ever told somebody, I'll be praying for you, and you really meant it, but you forgot? You ever done that? Fasting doesn't let you forget. When you connect prayer, I'm praying for this person with fasting. Every hunger pain, every meal you skip is going to remind you of what you're praying about. I tell you, when we're fasting and praying, folk, it's serious business. And Jesus tells us there's some things Some things in His kingdom work that are only accomplished by prayer and fasting. It's there in the passage. That's one of the ways that we bring people to Jesus. And if you think about it a minute, it makes sense because when we face that people, those people out in the world, and we know they need something that only Jesus can do for them. I can't help them. Jesus has got to help them, and yet they don't want Jesus. I need to bring them to Jesus. How can I do it? They won't listen to me. I can tell them, try to share the gospel with them. They don't want it. What can I do? Pray. That's how we bring them to Jesus. Fast and pray. It's in the text. Well, I can see then, summing this up this morning, that uh, the mountain of transfiguration is a preview of the rapture. Yeah, we shout amen about that when we like the rapture. That's, we like that story. I want to go out with the shout. I can see it in stark contrast to the six-day reference to the kingdom of man and His descent into deepening dark and depravity. This is a lesson that we need to learn well. I can see it as that scene that we see also all too well when Sunday after Sunday we sit in services and experience the power and presence and majesty of Jesus Christ. We exalt Him in worship. We listen to His words before us, but then we go out and face a hurting world and a lot of times we feel helpless. So let me ask you a couple of quick questions and we'll be done. Number one, if there are some things the devil is doing that we can only combat with prayer and fasting, are we putting those two things together uh, like ever? Like ever? Do we ever find ourselves then arguing maybe about Jesus or arguing about whatever? There's, like I said, a thousand things to argue about with the world at large. When what we really need to be focusing on is here's somebody I need to bring to Jesus. Bring them to Jesus. Bring them to me, Jesus said. Bring them to me. Is it possible that we could be like Simon Peter and be worried about maintaining and improving our worship experiences on the mountain? When maybe what we need to be focusing on is our ministry experiences in the valley. And I'll say to you again I, I, I'm so thankful. I'm thankful for Brother Bill, the wonderful time of worship that we have, our choir, our orchestra. I say it all the time, and I say it because I mean it. I'm so thankful for the worship experiences that we have, that we can come to a church where we can feel the Holy Spirit here among us and know that we're meeting with Him. Oh, that is a blessing and a blessed privilege for us. So thankful for that, not minimizing that at all. There's not a but at the end of this because all those things are true. While all those things are true, it is also true that we must not content ourselves with enjoying this wonderful time of worship if we are powerless in the valley. There's a hurting world out there that we need to bring to Jesus. You say, they don't want Him. I know that. We need to bring them to Jesus anyway. And we can do that, even if we can't talk to them. We can talk to Jesus about them. Let's stand together, please.